Hi, I'm Jill Shaw here with Ross Wilson, and this is a special edition of Last Night at School Committee. At last week's school committee meeting, we heard a presentation by the BPS administration on Build BPS, the city's plan to bring its school system into the 21st century. Right, so after the update at last week's meeting, school committee members had many questions, including some about enrollment and budget, two key factors in the overall plan, which have changed since the initial uh, release of Build BPS several years ago, and which are likely to be further impacted by this, uh, this pandemic. Yeah, so Ross, the Build BPS plan, enrollment trends, and the district's budget all have significant implications for Boston Public Schools at large. And so we're here today with Will Austin, founder and CEO of Boston Schools Fund, and Latoya Gale, founder of Boston School Finder and a parent activist, to help us better understand Build BPS, its implications for the district's readiness for the 21st century as we enter its third de decade. Um, Will and LaToya have been engaged with the district and its parent community, helping both understand the implications of Build BPS on the school system and its families. Welcome, Will and LaToya. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi. Um, as Jill mentioned, since 2014, the city of Boston and the Boston Public Schools have been discussing Build BPS, a facilities master plan for the Boston Public Schools aimed at bringing uh, Boston school buildings into the 21st century. And here we are, 2020 almost 21, talking about the school, bringing schools into the 21st century. Um, phase one of the project involved data collection and the crafting of a strategic plan. The first Build BPS report and plan was released in March of 2017. Uh, it records the state of each of the 125 or so buildings in the district, some of which are a century old, and many of which don't have HVAC systems or even some windows that open. Um, Will, can you give us some background and tell us what Build BPS is and what the original intent was? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and again, um, really glad to, to be here and talk with you guys again. Um, you know, it, it, I would track it back actually to 2013 um, because the first kind of theory about this project started with Mayor Walsh as a mayoral candidate. And so in 2013, when he was running for mayor, part of his educational platform was to put a billion dollars into school renovation and construction. And so that's a, that's a campaign promise he, he carried his administration and, and tried to carry through through Bill BPS. Um, I think uh, you might've been there, Ross. I mean, I remember when it officially launched, it was the fall of 2015 and it was in front of the McKay in East Boston, if I remember correctly, where the kind of Bill BPS project officially kind of launched. And you know, I would say the, the intent was, was buildings, right? Literally building, it's called build BPS. You know, as Ross mentioned, had a lot of old buildings, you know, two thirds that were built before World War II. You know, in 2015, we hadn't built a new school building, I think in at least 11 or 12 years. And so there definitely was a need, an urgent need to kind of address the building issues. And I know we're gonna get into this in different parts, but it isn't as simple as building buildings, right? because you have educational programming you have to take into consideration. There's enrollment patterns you have to take into consideration. Um, and so Build BPS kind of launched, but it ended up being a lot more than just a kind of construction project or a massive facilities plan. Um, and it involved a lot of engagement with stakeholders and families around um, not just buildings, but the stuff that makes the buildings. What's the learning environment? What are the enrollment patterns? And you know, I'd say, we're gonna to talk about this today, configuration of school grades turned out to be like a very big kind of um, column of work that I don't know was there initially at the beginning. I wouldn't say I started in 13 or 15, but quickly became a big focus of Bill BPS is how are grades configured and how are schools configured. 
Thank you, Will. I mean, it is, it is, um, it's interesting how, it, it, you know, this is about buildings, but it really is about the program. Buildings have to represent the programs that are in the buildings and what the right learning that should be happening in our buildings and how do we design those spaces um, to meet the learning needs of our students. Um, all right, Latoya, so what do you think the original intent is, you know, of Build BPS? Is it the same as it was in 2016, 2017 as it is today? I think at its core, I would say yes. Um, I think the, the biggest problem with Build BPS, I think then and now, is when people hear, hear the term Build BPS, they think, oh, everyone's going to get a new building. Everyone's going to have like a flashy facility, and that's just not what it is. So in some ways, it's bad branding. Um, but when you dig into it, like you said, Build BPS is about buildings, but more importantly, it's about what happens in those buildings and how do buildings, the, what they have in them, how they're designed actually facilitate learning and learning environments for children. I think, I think at its core, that's the same. I think um, it's not being implemented in a way that families actually feel that impact. That's interesting. So have there been any wins in the past couple of years as Build BS, BPS has sort of been launched? What, what, what do you think? Have there been things that they can point to that have been successes? Honestly, the, one of the biggest successes, um, which was not necessarily lined out in the original Build BPS is My Way Cafes. I mean, people are happy, happier with lunch. Um, and yeah. Right. And, you know, and especially thinking about the, the demographics of BPS, culturally, food is important. And mm -hmm. so when you feed people well, they feel welcome, they're ready to learn. It's important. Um, I, I think, you know, there's been there's been little upgrades like water fountains. Um, there there are some school buildings that, you know, have opened. But in gen there, there, there have been ones, but I think they're smaller than people anticipated or thought they would be. Interesting. Well, what, what do you think? Would you add anything? I agree with all that. I mean, you know, anyone who's listening, who's been fortunate enough to buy a house, right? The first thing you want to do is redo the kitchen. You don't want to fix the roof. You don't want to do over the pipes. And I will say that the city has, you know, first with getting some transparency and kind of understanding where schools are, at least have an inventory of how to do deferred maintenance. You know, and you can drive around the city last couple of years, you know, you'd see buildings being repointed, you know, you would see boilers being replaced. And so a lot of the kind of necessary, but not necessarily flashy work has and continues to happen. And, uh, and even this past year sped up very quickly. Yeah, right, because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely been a ton of deferred maintenance. I do think there was a really good faith effort to get um, some amenities into school buildings too, not just My Way Cafe, but trying to get more technology and better furniture into buildings. I know there were some pretty good investments there too, but Latoya is a thousand percent right. Like this idea that we're gonna suddenly have all these buildings going up like it's a monopoly board. Um, just not enough time and that's really, really expensive. And so you can't really point to a, a building to say that building was made through this because even the construction that has happened since 2014 were legacy projects from before. Now they may have been funded, but mm through Bill BPS funding, but you know, Dearborn STEM Academy, the Elliott Campus, um, the, even the Quincy building that's moving forward now, those, those are older projects. They've been in the queue for a very, very long time. And so it's great they're getting shovel ready now, but I wouldn't call them new. 
But so help me understand, is there some sort of overarching point of view on what a 21st century education is that's guiding how we look at buildings and transformation of buildings as part of this project? Or is that, is that not what's happening here? Is that too creative? And this is really much more about the nuts and bolts of making sure that buildings are stable to house 54 or 53,000 kids, whatever it is. I think that's part of the problem. There's not like an agreed upon like definition of this is what it takes to be a 21st century building. Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily sure that there should be like a boilerplate, like this is it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there should be some like basic things like technology should be available for like Conceptually, we should right. have a point of view. We, we should Yeah, we should have a point of view. And I'm not sure that we do. And I think that kind of hinders what that means. And also what, you know, a 21st century education is also should be leading that that discussion about what right. a 21st century building is and and there is not an agreement on that right so let's dig in a little bit into last week's school committee meeting and um you know so so you know it's been quite a while since we've heard from build bps um and and at last night's or sorry last week's school committee meeting um there was discussion around two Really, yeah, there's two votes really, right? Um, the first was around closing the Edwards School and moving Charlestown High School and East Boston High School to seven grades, grades seven to 12. So adding seventh and eighth grade at Charlestown High and East E High. And um, there was, there's a vote that will happen at the next meeting on the McCormick and BCLA merger at the McCormick site and phasing out the Boston Community Leadership Academy High School. And, um, and then there was discussion around the need to figure out what to do about Horace Mann, the Horace Mann School for the Deaf, and, um, and what's going to be happening with the Jackson Mann. And I just want to get, you know, your sense, you know, from you, LaToya, first on, like, how do you, how do those impact families? What do you think about those moves? Um, and then we'll turn to Will to hear more on, on the policy implications for the district on those moves. Right. I think, I think a lot of times, families are feel like they're in the dark about these decisions, um, when they're going to be made and when they're actually going to be implemented. The projects you mentioned are projects that people have been hearing about for years, like, oh, this might happen, this might happen. And so like when it finally happens, people are still like, what? They actually like did that? And so there's still like a shock. And um, of course, like switching schools disrupts families' lives, right? It disrupts what they planned uh, for their children. Um, but in some ways, you know, when you're talking about like uh, grade reconfigurations at least, parents do, it's true, parents do want some predictability. They want to know. And so we have to, we have to choose, we have to start at some point, but the way that families are engaged and, and how things are communicated to them is of the utmost importance. So you, so families feel like, oh, this is a system I can trust because I've been informed. And then also like, the, you know, having families walk through the Edwards, the Horace Mann families, and it, it does make them think, oh, this can be our building when that wasn't the intent. They have to be careful about doing things like that because it miscommunicates uh, things to families. So I think there could be a much better job done at communicating families about what's actually going to happen, what's in the pipeline, and really where where their voice is actually going to have some influence or not. Right. 
Right. That's a great point. Thank you, Latoya. Yeah. And, and right. And you're, you're referring to when, when um, the school system invited families from the Horace Mann school um, because their schools, they were told their school, the building is going to close that they got, right. they, they were invited to let's, you know, go tour the Edwards and see if you like it or not, um, right. which they thought was an invitation to, to, to house, house themselves in that building. Right. Um, which turned out to not be the case. Um, Will, what about you know, on general policy of this? Like, how how do these these you know th these are relatively small decisions, right? You know, closing the Edwards um, and and moving um, to seven twelve at, at Easty High and Charlestown High and merging the McCormick and BCLA to make a seven twelve high school or school. Um, what are what are the sort of the larger policy implications for these these decisions? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. One, I mean. The Edwards was slated to kind of close on a longer process. It just got sped up. And I just don't want to skip over the kind of point that, you know, systems and policy really matter. You know, and so, what are we, 2020? 15 years ago, if you had told me the Edwards Middle School was going to close and be under-enrolled, I think all of us would have been surprised. To it was like that. the top performing school, right? It, we, it was like our shining star of a middle school, wasn't it? What, what shifted so what, that changed things so dramatically? Say from not, and I'm saying this not around the teachers in the building or the students and families that have, that have inhabited that building, you know, policies matter. And so if you go to home base and if you create more K through eights, it's really difficult to fill a six through eight middle school, mm. right? And so the Edwards, you know, a bunch of K through eights opened first, you know, that makes it harder to enroll kids because a lot of families want that continuity. Mm -hmm. And then home base that in 2013, their catchment area got smaller. And so just, it's kind of like just a point while we're here to say that these policy decisions really matter and they really do affect how schools function. Um, and we gotta be thinking a few steps out about the decisions we make before we make them. Just, just to kind of make that as a policy point. Um, so yeah, I mean, with the, and, and to connect to Ross's point about mergers, I mean, there's a chance you potentially see more of these, right? Because there are a couple remaining standalone middle schools that have very much had the same experience of the Edwards, the Timulty which when I was growing up and when I was becoming an educator was like the model middle school in the city, right? Hmm. Project Promise. Project like Promise, that. right. That was a, such a amazing school. Right. And so in a, in a very similar circumstance, you know, these kind of like kind of systemic or policy decisions really affect the, how those schools enroll. And I would not be surprised potentially if say the Timulty ends up getting merged with something else potentially, who knows? Cause they've done it once with BCLA and McCormick now. Um, and so, I mean, the last thing I'll say on the seven through 12 stuff and the, in the K through six stuff is that, you know, the, the city has a real kind of middle school model question they have to answer generally, like the system does, but what is a quality middle school? And I guess the way to frame it differently is not so much what's a quality middle school, but what is what a quality middle school grades look like. Hmm. Right. And instead, I think what we've done is say, well, let's try K through eights. And now let's try K six through seven, 12, but I'm not, not sure that we've had a real conversation to get to Latoya's point around like, what does a 21st century education look like for six, seventh and eighth graders? And I, I'm hopeful that the process of creating these new seven through 12s, that is at the core of the question. It's not just about like, how do we create more efficient feeder patterns amongst neighborhoods, although that matters, but that are we actually gonna address what a high quality developmentally appropriate, you know, um, modern education for those grades looks like because I don't I don't hear that conversation happening at a policy level. That's really important. Thank you for raising that. That's a, that's a great that's a great point. The I, you know I'm also wondering both from from you, Latoya and Will. What do you guys think about 
Um, I, the way I think about this is like, if we move our high schools to 712, aren't we moving from citywide high schools to neighborhood-based high schools? Like, is that, like, I've never heard right. the school community talk about this or, or changing their student assignment policy, but it seems like we are changing our student assignment policy by essentially creating, um, if, we, if students enter in seventh grade, they abide by the neighborhood, essentially the neighborhood-based um, assignment pattern. Whereas if they enroll in ninth grade to 12th grade, they, um, they abide by the citywide pattern. Right. Why, why, why is that shift so definitive? Well, it's, it's definitive if, if they don't make a decision to make seven through 12 high schools citywide because you're gonna, ha you're gonna have seventh and eighth graders who, who maybe because they live close to a school, so schools by neighborhood, they're gonna already have access to this building and they can continue on. And right. you might create some inequity. If a school does really well, it's highly sought after, but it's already filled in seventh and eighth grade by kids who, are, who live near it, for instance, or who, who have access to it for some other reason. And the amount of kids who will be able to get in and that citywide ninth grade high, high school assignment is limited. And so there's gonna have to be a decision made. Are seventh grade citywide enrollment or are all schools neighborhood enrollment? There's gonna have to be decisions made about who has access to what schools. And we've already, I mean, the school system has already begun to do this, right? Quietly, mm -hmm. I, I believe um, Excel 712 and New Mission. Yeah. Um, so we, we've, we've started moving schools to 712 and changing enrollment patterns without really discussing what's been happening at those schools and thereby creating neighborhood high schools for the first yeah. time um, in a long time in Boston. Absolutely. Ever since, ever since DSEG, I would say, or desegregation. Yeah. So maybe, Will, you can also talk about how enrollment plays into this. You, you um, Boston Schools Fund sent around a deck uh, with data last week, right before yeah. the school committee meeting that um, had a pretty significant analysis on enrollment patterns in, in the city. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that and about what direction we're headed in with the total number of students in, in the school, school system? Yeah. I'll give some of the highlights, but you know, folks want to dig into the full analysis. It's it's on our website, and we want to give uh, credit where it's due to our, our team, particularly Tyler Smith, who works with us, who really drove most of the analysis, and also the folks at Boston Indicators because we did some work with them on this as well. They've got a really good statewide analysis. I would encourage folks to pick up on. Um, as has been true since mid March, um, what we're seeing in schools is feature, not bug. So the enrollment decline that we see in Boston is sped up by COVID but it's been long and coming for some time before that. And so, you know, the kind of analysis, I would say there's kind of a couple top lines. One is that the decline is real. So Boston Public School enrollment has gone down by about 11% over the last five years, but it jumped down by another four and a half, almost 5% this year. So that long-term decline has been happening for a variety of reasons. We can talk more about that in discussion, but I don't want folks to take the opinion that somehow COVID caused this. Mm -hmm. um, gas, it's sped it up, but it's been there for a bit. Um, same thing with, with um, Black and Latinx students. So the biggest decrease in Boston Public School enrollment was amongst those populations, but this isn't new. There are 16,000 less Black students in Boston Public Schools than there were 20 years ago. 16,000. Well, where, where, where are students or families choosing to go if they're not going to BPS any longer? I think the easy answer is to say that they went to charters, but the numbers don't add up. 
um, they've been other, that is a part of it, right? That charter schools grew for the last decade and a half and, and by and large those schools have high black populations, but like that doesn't tell the whole story. But um, Well, are there less black families in Boston? There's evidence that's the case. And like, you could go back to, you know, the, the kids today study to see that. And there is a long-term decline in black, the black population, but also generally households in Boston. So there's a bunch of like market forces pushing down on this that, right. that make these things happen again. They just sped up here. Um, economically disadvantaged population seems to be shifting quite a bit in the city. And so the number of kids in Boston public schools that were determined to be economically disadvantaged went up and those who weren't down. Um, and we saw a real decline in the number of students this year who were identified as having ELL status. Now that might be because they weren't identified. So I don't wanna jump to the analysis here, but I'm not necessarily saying there are less kids in the system with ELL needs. I'm just saying there were less kids identified as a percentage. Right. Um, and just to round this off uh, very quickly, we saw drops in enrollment across every single neighborhood, um, except for Back Bay, but there was only nine kids. Um, and so it's not like there's pockets of the city where it's declining, it's diffuse, it's everywhere. Um, and the thing, the thing that I think is most important for Bill BPS is that the biggest declines are in entry grades. Pre-K, K and ninth dropped by the greatest percentages and those enrollment points often project out what enrollment is in future years. Um, and finally, just in just kind of a kicker in the analysis to kick back to Bill BPS, um, Bill PBS's projections from five years ago are off by 10,000 kids. Meaning their, their projections were 10,000 kids greater. There's nothing wrong with that. Projecting student populations is incredibly difficult. It's complex, right. change. There's been a lot of factors in the last five years, everything from the pandemic to Trump to other things that could have affected enrollment patterns in our city. Mm -hmm. But it's probably time to update the math. So does that though, that probably has implications for the number of buildings even in the city that we need to house students. Now it might change, right? If, if, if we philosophically said a 21st century education requires 10 square feet more per kid or hundred square feet more per kid or whatever it is, then maybe we need all of the buildings we have, but then in the other case, maybe not. And, and so have you heard discussion about that or, or how, how do folks think about that? Or is there even a point of view on how many square feet per child there should be? I think right now what it appears is that, um, this is kind of be done by a case by case basis. No, and I'll just say like our analysis is not complete. We don't have access to all the data BPS has. And so I'll leave it by saying that there's, there, there could be a finer analysis of this data with the information the state and the city has. And it was our hope by putting this out to kind of prompt that conversation. And so right. to give a very quick example, we can say that enrollment in Alston Brighton schools is down by a very large percent. I can't say that that, that is all Austin Brighton kids, right? And so come back to Ross's point about neighborhoods. Like you gotta, this was just a way to kind of start the conversation. To get this right, you gotta go down a couple more layers to figure out, could they have a 712? Like, is that even viable? Like, would there even be enough kids? Are there yeah. Charlestown, for Charlestown 712? Like, we'd, I don't know from the data I have, but I would hope and expect that BPS would. Well, and the other piece of this is that budgets follow enrollment, right? So there's a per child budget 
that rolls up into the Boston Public Schools budget. So that would mean also that the budget would shrink and that budget is partially taking care of those buildings, right? And the operations within, within those buildings. Anyone who is a BPS parent or has watched this stuff for the last five years, it is not surprising to any of us that I've, we've seen population decline since 2015. And every year since then, every budget cycle is, can I keep my librarian? Right. Can I keep this special? can I do this? Those two things are connected. If you have an enrollment decline, then you're, the pressure ends up being at the school level about like what programs they can afford. Can, can you talk about what does this do though politically and environmentally if, if the school committee and the folks who are working on the BPS, um, build BPS plan now decide based on re, you know, rethinking what enrollment's going to look like, play it out a decade or eight years, and they decide, okay, you know what we actually think enrollment's going in a different direction and, and therefore we're going to need to shut five or six schools. What does that do to families? And, and, and right, like, shouldn't that also be a part of the plan? I would think you'd want to know both ways. Like if we grow, it looks like this. If we shrink, it looks like this. And, and I would imagine there's some real conversations that have to happen at the community level if we're going to make dramatic changes, but at the same time, it feels like it comes down to budget and how well we can take care of the schools and buildings that we have in addition to the community. And I'll, I'll kind of seed a last point and let other folks jump in. Like that does just come down. I know people say these words all the time, but it comes down to transparency. You have to trust that families and kids and educators can understand the data and problem solve in a way that's authentic. Um, that's the only way you move stuff like this forward. You don't make it forward by making a plan and then trying to sell it. That doesn't work. So, so Latoya, what, yeah. So what's, what do you think is, I'd love to hear your response to that. And, and what's next, what do you think is next with community engagement with build BPS and what should be happening? Yeah. Um, and, and I also say, I think a question that needs to really be dug into is what is driving declining enrollment? Uh, um, maybe in 2019, um, school finder did an analysis of enrollment for black families in Boston. And, and at that time, one third of black families in Boston did not choose BPS. That's a huge number of, of families. And so yeah. really think about what is driving the declining enrollment in BPS. And also, you, families have to be brought in during the planning process. And like you said, not sell, not sell somebody a plan after the fact that they know is not going to work for them. And sometimes hard decisions can be, have to be made, but I think families can understand that if they were a part of that planning process and understood everything that went into that. And I will also say, I think we really need to reconsider if uh, per pupil spending is the way that we do our budget. Should we make a decision that this is what 21st century education is? And this is what that costs. Does every school need a library? Does every school need a librarian? Does every school need swing spaces? What does every school need, no matter how many kids are in there? And if we make the choice to have a building, then we have to make sure that every building is funded. And then we need to think about what's driving enrollment and how, you know, how we fill those buildings they kind of go hand in hand, but if we make the choice to have a building, a building should be functional to educate children because that's what it's there for. That makes a lot of sense. So I would, I would like to, um, in, you know, in, in closing, would like to ask each of you to think about if you were a school committee member, 
Hmm. Um, and you were, the Build BPS is being presented. Um, what would be, and you had one question. You're only allowed one question. What question would you, would you want to ask the school system um, about Build BPS? That's a hard one. <laughs> You can you can make it a run on sentence. There you go. Yeah, right? You could say and, right? You could ask multiple questions. Um, I would say, when is this going to be complete, and when will we see the impacts of all this planning and decision making? Right. Okay. So so when is when is when is the plan going to be uh, you know given that things have changed a bit right when it, yeah. when is the finalized plan going to happen we heard from the school committee um the presentation that there's going to be a new community engagement process um, right. so it's sort of like wait like we're going back at this again you know so yeah. you want it you would want to know like very defin definitively what's the plan yeah the yeah yeah even a question i asked uh, the first go around in this i asked you know like as a parent why, why do I care about a plan that you're telling me is going to take 12 years? I won't have kids in school. Even my youngest is in kindergarten now. If right. this is going to take another 12 years, why do I care? <laughs> right, right. Good point. Right, great point. All right, Will, do you have one, one question if you're a school committee member that you would ask? Yes, I would ask in the next month or so, please show me how your budget projections for next year for all your schools match demand data and what's been published by the state. Wow. Yeah. So you, you would ask, yeah, right. So let's match, let's match the student enrollment to the budget, to the, um, to the plan really. Right. And, and show us how that all works together. Because it is a little rare that we have this data this early. Typically the state does not release enrollment data till after BPS has started their enrollment projections and budgeting. So it's a unique opportunity to get the numbers, right? That's great. That's great. Great question. Um, well, I did. I do hear that there's two school committee seats open, um, uh, or, or at least uh, they're inviting people to apply. So Latoya, Will, I hope you guys will consider. Um, Build BPS is a 10-year plan and continues to change and evolve over time. We'll continue to get updates at school committee meetings, and we'll continue to discuss the plans and their implications as they come. Thank you for joining us for the special edition of Last Night at School Committee and a quick dive into Build BPS. We will be back on Thursday next week with a recap of Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting on Wednesday night. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.